This is a beautiful passage of scripture. It's an interesting story. It's a story that captures our hearts and our imaginations. There's suspense and tension and romance and varying characters and you wonder what's going to happen and what's going to come of this. It's an interesting story on a natural level. But the main idea in this text is not that he who finds a wife finds a good thing, as it says elsewhere in Scripture, uh, nor is it about good planning and wisdom and so on and so forth. The main idea in this text is that it is God who provides a wife for Isaac. Certainly other parties are involved. Abraham sends a servant. The servant goes. And implicit in the text is that Isaac consented to the arrangement. Otherwise it would have been useless for Abraham to go to all the trouble of commissioning and sending his servant if Isaac, his 30-something-year-old son, wouldn't have the wife that came from Abraham's kinsman. And on the other end, Rebekah demonstrates admirable character. Bethuel and Laban negotiate, and Rebekah consents, but it is God who provides a wife for Isaac. This is a story about God's providence, or God's unfolding of events in such a way that His decreed purposes come to pass. We'll come to see in tonight's study exactly what our confession of faith states. As the providence of God does in general reach to all creatures, so after a more special manner, it takes care of His church and disposeth of all things to the good thereof. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So let's back up and begin with the mission of Abraham's servant. One of Abraham's servants is commissioned to get a wife for Isaac from Abraham's people. It's important to Abraham that Isaac doesn't get a wife from the Canaanites, because you'll recall from way back in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 25 that the Canaanites are under a curse. So though Abraham is presently living among the Canaanites, He doesn't want his son Isaac to marry into the cursed people or to intermix with the cursed people. It's difficult, however, for Isaac to get a wife from another people because Abraham doesn't want Isaac to leave the promised land, the land of the Canaanites. Presumably, it had been Abraham's wish all the way along, up to the commissioning of his servant here, that Isaac remain in the land and not go back to Abraham's people himself. We see in verses 6 and verse 8 that Isaac does not, pardon me, Abraham does not want Isaac to leave the promised land and go to another place to get a wife. Presumably that had been Abraham's position all the way along. So, 
on the one hand, Isaac is not supposed to marry the Canaanites among whom he lives. But on the other hand, he's not supposed to leave and go look for a wife elsewhere. And so Abraham devises this plan to send a servant on Isaac's behalf to go and get a wife from his people. Those are the facts of the narrative before us. But we need to notice and consider that more is at stake in this passage than simply finding a wife for one man. I'm sure that many of us have interesting stories about how we met our wives or our husbands or how we met the one we're presently engaged to or we hope that there will be an interesting story like this in our future. But none of our stories are included in the Bible. And in fact, not even, not even all the stories of how one biblical character gets together with another are included in the Bible. And so this isn't just a personal interest section of the Bible, just a little romance story to keep our interest as we make our way through the Genesis narrative. There's more at stake than simply one man finding a wife. This text is about the future of God's people. This text is about the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. We should recall that as Galatians 4 teaches us, there are two peoples or two nations who will come from Abraham. There is the nation which was formally organized and established by the Mosaic Covenant. That is the nation of Israel. Then there is the nation referred to in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. A nation formally organized and established by the New Covenant. Both of these peoples trace their roots back to Abraham, the covenant that God made with Abraham. There's a connectedness between these two people. They're both Abraham's seed, albeit in distinct ways. And God has already made promises concerning these nations in the book of Genesis. But the fulfillment of the respective promises to both nations is dependent upon Isaac finding a wife and procreating. There is to be a nation comprised of Abraham's physical seed traced through Isaac's line. You will recall in Genesis 17, Abraham said, Oh, that Ishmael may stand before you. But God said, No, it's through Isaac that your offspring shall be named. If this nation comprised of Abraham's physical seed is to be established, is to come into existence, Isaac must become a father. And there's also to be a nation comprised of those united by faith to a far descendant of Abraham. You recall Galatians says that it is those who are of faith who are the children of Abraham. Abraham's seed, albeit a different kind of seed. But that far distant descendant of Abraham, if he is, if there are to be people united to him, 
of course, he must exist. And if he is to exist, then again, Isaac must become a father. So there's more at stake here than simply one man finding a wife. This is about the future of God's people. This is about the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. It's in view of all this that finding the finding of a wife for Isaac becomes an urgent matter. And thus, Abraham makes his servant take a solemn oath with respect to his mission. And the servant does take the oath and conducts himself faithfully throughout the text, recognizing the seriousness of the oath that he's taken. And recognizing what is at stake in the mission. I'll speak more on the servant's awareness of the stakes in a moment. But for now, just suffice it to say that both Abraham and the servant undertake this mission to find Isaac a wife with a sense of gravity and urgency. The mission is one upon which the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham rests. And it is therefore a mission which must succeed. And we know from reading the whole chapter just a few moments ago that in fact the mission does meet with success. What was the cause of the success? Let's consider first the human factor. Abraham acts in this passage as a responsible father doing what was customary at the time and attempting to find a wife for his son. The text says that he was well advanced in years, about 137 by my reckoning. And though he'd live 38 more years after this, according to Genesis 25 and verse 7, Abraham was likely prompted by Sarah's death, recorded for us in Genesis 23, and the consideration then of his own mortality. As his wife passes, he's thinking about his own passing. And it's most likely that this prompts him to think more seriously about finding a wife for Isaac so that the family line might continue. Knowing that God had promised him descendants as numerous as the stars. Abraham evidently at this time gave some more serious thought to the implications of that and realized that he must now seek a wife for his son more urgently than he had to date. So he puts one of his servants under an oath to find a wife for Isaac. Some commentators speculate that this servant was Eliezer of Damascus, mentioned back in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 2 who before Ishmael and before Isaac, Abraham was intending to bequeath his estate to. He obviously would have been a servant loved and trusted. He would have been a servant who had been with Abraham for a long time, which fits with the description of him here, that he was the oldest of his household, had charge of all that he had. In any case, Abraham takes a trustworthy servant, one he knows will be faithful in this matter. 
And he gets the servant to put his hand under his thigh, which simply signified the gravity of the oath. And he requires the servant to swear that he will do what he can to get a wife for Isaac from Abraham's people. And the servant's diligence in this matter is exemplary. Notice first, before he even leaves on his mission, before he even takes the oath, he asks a question. Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? The servant's concern here about his ability to fulfill the mandate that Abraham was giving to him. And his question shows that he's not taking the oath lightly. He's not like, yeah, yeah, okay, Abraham, no problem, let me get going. He's thinking about it. He's thinking about the implications. What may happen, what may transpire along the way. He doesn't want to overpromise and underdeliver. Then notice next the immediate action on the servant's part. We don't read of him waiting around or procrastinating. We simply read that after the oath, then in verse 10, the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed. We get the impression that the oath was taken. And the camels were loaded, and he's on his way. And the wisdom of the servant is evident in loading up the camels with a sampling of Abraham's riches. Understandably, the family of the young woman would be concerned to inquire about the ability of Isaac to provide for her. Just think of it, if if someone showed up wanting to marry your daughter and they had a plausible backstory and so on and so forth you might entertain this but you would have questions practical questions the servant shows wisdom here in loading up the camels with all sorts of choice gifts from his master he's eliminating that variable that question mark in the minds of a potential bride's family. The sampling of wealth would serve to allay any potential concerns in this regard. Notice then thirdly, in verses 13 and 14, the servant's plan for identifying a suitable young woman. He's not asking God for a miraculous sign like Gideon's fleece that we read about in Judges chapter 6. Rather, he's asking God to make a godly, pardon me, to make, he's asking God to make a virtuous young woman's character visible to him through her actions. Kent Hughes speaks to this in his commentary on the chapter. A woman who would volunteer to water the camels would be remarkably kind generous and industrious. We must understand that the ancient well was a large, deep hole in the earth with steps leading down to the spring water so that each drawing of the water required substantial effort. Okay, listen to this math here. And more, a camel would typically drink about 25 gallons of water. Rebecca's container would have held about three gallons. 
This means that Rebecca made between 80 to 100 descents into the well. Rebecca's labors, therefore, filled one and one half to two sweaty hours. More on Rebecca in a moment, but notice the wisdom of the servant in looking for a woman of character for Isaac. He wasn't merely looking for a pretty face. He wasn't merely asking around for Abraham's kid. He was looking for a woman of good character for Isaac. And what an ingenious way of testing for a woman's character. Then notice in verse 33, the single-mindedness of the servant. Having been welcomed into the home of Rebecca's family for the night, he won't even eat till he's brought up his intentions. And in verse 56, when he's urged to stay a little longer, the servant is hasty to depart back to Abraham's household. It's clear that the servant is diligent and wise in the fulfillment of the task that Abraham has charged him with. And Rebecca, as I already mentioned, she's distinguished herself already as a virtuous woman in her generosity and in her hospitality at the well. This is an admirable and praiseworthy woman. Then notice also in verse 58, her willingness to go with Abraham's servant. Presumably, this conversation was longer than three or four paragraphs in real life. As it, as it is with the sermons recorded for us in the book of Acts or some of Jesus' teachings in the Gospels, these are condensed versions of all the words that were spoken. And most likely that's the situation here. It's, it's highly unlikely that in the time it took me to read the chapter, they met the servant, had a little conversation with the servant, and agreed to send their daughter away to a foreign land. What's much more likely is this, this was a whole evening of conversation. And so, doubtless, the servant had relayed these events, which are recorded for us here. But in speaking about Abraham, he would have spoken about Abraham's relationship to Yahweh and some of these promises that God had made to his servant. He would have talked about Abraham's trust and faith in God and Abraham's assurance that the Lord would lead him in this matter. And he would have recounted the Lord's providence in bringing him to Rebekah at the well. All of these things would have been themes that had come out. And so when Rebekah chooses in verse 58 to go with this man, immediately as opposed to waiting 10 days, she's making a wise choice. She's heard something of what it is like to live in Abraham's household. To live in the household of one chosen and called by God. To live in the household of one to whom promises have been made. And she wants that. So Rebecca is not only a generous and hospitable woman, she's a wise woman. She's a woman that desires to be in proximity to Yahweh, to know more about this God 
into come herself into the family of those who have dealings with this God. So there are Abraham's actions, there are the servant's actions, there are Rebecca's actions. There is, in this passage, there are, I should say, human decisions being made, human actions being taken. There is a human factor in the success of this mission. Abraham and his servant are diligent and wise, and Rebecca displays good character, wisdom, and receptivity in accepting the proposal. Yet we'd be missing the point if we just stopped here and said, so be wise like Abraham. Be diligent like Abraham's servant. Be receptive like Rebecca. Again, this passage is about God providing a wife for Isaac. We need to consider not only the human factor in the success of this mission, but the divine factor in the success of this mission. God is at work here, unfolding the affairs of mankind according to His plan and His decree. God doesn't do it to the exclusion of human participation, but He does do it. God governs even the ordinary affairs of this world so that exactly what He has planned and purposed is accomplished. This is called providence. God is at work here, unfolding providence in order to fulfill His purposes. Look at verse 7. Abraham is confident that God will provide a wife for Isaac. He says, He will send His angel before you. When the servant recounts Abraham's words in verse 40, the servant says that Abraham said, The Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. Abraham's confident that as the servant goes, God will be at work to provide a wife for Isaac. Why is Abraham so confident? What's the basis of Abraham's confidence that things will unfold this way. God has promised to make Abraham's descendants as numerous as the stars and to do it, as I said earlier, through Isaac. That is God's stated purpose. And so Abraham expects God's providence to unfold in such a way that he brings his stated purposes to pass. Then look at verse 12. The servant prays for God's providence to unfold favorably towards him as he seeks to be faithful in the mission that Abraham's given him. The servant knows, as Abraham has discussed it with him, 
that God has purposed to get a wife for Isaac and for the servant to bring her back to the promised land which God has likewise purposed to give to Abraham and his descendants. So the servant, like Abraham, is asking God to providentially, in this matter, bring to pass his stated purposes. And we know what happens. God grants Abraham's desire. God answers the servant's prayer in the affirmative. A young woman is found who is to be the wife of Isaac. The servant is exactly right in verse 37 where he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. The servant understands that though he went and acted, he understands that it is the Lord who has shown steadfast love towards Abraham in this matter. Steadfast love, that phrase, occurs in the context of God keeping his covenant to his people. Steadfast love. God is keeping his covenant to Abraham by providing a wife for his son. The servant knows that God has acted providentially in a way that is keeping with his covenant obligations to Abraham. In a way that is consistent with the things that he has promised to Abraham. The servant knows that the Lord has governed providentially in this matter in accordance with its stated purpose to make Abraham's descendants as numerous as the stars and to do it through Isaac. Indeed, as Laban and Bethuel reply in verse 50, the thing has come from the Lord. That's what's going on in this text. God, in this case, is governing the world as He always does in such a way that the things that He has purposed and promised come to pass. God's providence, the way He unfolds events in our lives, in this servant's life, in Rebecca's life, in Isaac's life, in Abraham's life, God's providence always serves God's purposes. And that's the main idea that we're to take away from this passage. What does it mean for us? For one thing, we can thank God for working providentially in this situation, in Genesis chapter 24, to bring about His purpose. It's very relevant for us that that Isaac found a wife. Very relevant for us. Because, listen, hypothetically, if Isaac never found a wife, there would be no seed in whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And we wouldn't be here in a church, in a little island, 
on a different continent from where Isaac lived and walked if he had never found a wife and if that promised seed had never come. So it's actually very relevant to us directly that Isaac found a wife. Galatians 3 tells us that Jesus, our Savior, is the seed or the offspring of Abraham in whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Without Rebecca, there would be no Jesus. That's what's at stake in this passage. But God governs the affairs of the servant and his journey, of Abraham and his plans, of Isaac and Isaac's family in such a way that Isaac has Jacob. And Jacob becomes Israel. And Israel becomes a great nation. And from Israel, as Romans 9 says, is the Christ who is blessed forever. So we should appreciate God's providence here in Genesis chapter 24. That He governs the affairs of man in such a way that He brings the things that He has purposed and the things that He has promised to pass. And we should be thankful that He does this not only in Genesis chapter 24, but throughout the Old Testament. As God... As we read the Old Testament, we see that God superintends the affairs of His people in order to bring about the Messiah in the manner promised. We read Matthew chapter 1 this morning. And Matthew's point there is that in his genealogy is that this is the promised one. That this is the one we've been waiting for. That this is the one that God through his prophets have been speaking about for generation upon generation. Throughout all of the affairs of history, God has been at work to fulfill the promises that he made to Abraham. And ultimately to bring that offspring in whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. We should thank God that His providence has served His purposes here in Genesis chapter 24 and throughout all the Old Testament. And while we thank God for His providence in the past, this instance of His providence in Genesis chapter 24 should encourage us to continue to trust His providence into the future. As God's providence has thus far served His purposes, so shall His providence continue to serve His purposes. There are some dark days in Old Testament history. But God was providentially governing all things to bring to pass what He had purposed. Listen, no life was lost in the Old Testament which God intended to preserve. No soul perished.
perished throughout Old Testament history whom God intended to save. No king ascended to the throne, whether of Israel or Babylon or Persia. No king ascended to the throne whom God had not raised up. Even Pharaoh, the great oppressor of the Israelites, Romans 9 tells us, was raised up for God's purpose. And no king was ever deposed or assassinated or conquered whom God had not brought down. From the peasant in the countryside to the king in his castle. Though real choices were made, though real actions were taken, though the human factor was very much operative, God was providentially governing the affairs of every man and of his people collectively to serve his purposes. We see that in all the Old Testament, but we see that here also in Genesis chapter 24. Therefore, tomorrow, next year, next decade, there may be some dark days in your life or in our lives together. There may be some dark days ahead for civilizations. And the human factor is real. We're going to make choices, some good and some bad. And we're going to take action for better or worse. And other people are going to make choices, some good and some bad. And other people are going to take action for better or worse. But as it has been, so shall it be. God's providence in it all, through it all, over it all, in spite of it all. God's providence shall continue to serve God's purposes. And believer, trusting in Christ Jesus, united to Him by faith, child of Abraham, God's purposes for you are ultimately good. We read earlier, God, who did not spare His own Son, but graciously gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? God's purposes for us are ultimately good. We may pass through the valley of the shadow of death. We may pass through the fires and through the waters. But when we do, Isaiah tells us that God is with us. The psalmist tells us that God is with us. And He's not with us in the manner that we are passing through these things. 
subject to them, affected by them, powerless over them. God is with us, but he's in the fire and he's in the water and he's in the valley of the shadow of death, not as we are, but he's the God of the valley. He is the God of the fire. He's the God of the water. We may not understand what he's doing. As the Old Testament people of God often fail to understand. And we're not to abdicate our responsibility. As Abraham and his servant in this text didn't abdicate their responsibilities though they trusted in God and His providence. We may not understand and we're not without responsibility as we go through these things, but we need to recall passages like Genesis 24 where we see God working out His purposes even as the human factor is operative. And trust that as he worked out his purpose in Genesis chapter 24, as he worked out his purpose through many dark and difficult happenings throughout the rest of the Old Testament, to do what he's doing here in Genesis 24, to bring the promises that he made to Abraham to fruition, ultimately to bring that distant descendant of Abraham in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. As God worked through many dark and difficult times to make sure that Isaac had a child and Jacob had a child and Judah had a child and so on and so forth all the way down until Mary had a child. Through all of the ups and downs, through all of the many dark and difficult happenings, God was concerned to providentially unfold the events of history to bring about his purposes. Trust that he will continue to do these things. Trust in the God who brought Christ Jesus into the world for the first time for our good. To live for us. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons, to die for us, suffer once the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Trust in the one who was raised for our justification. Trust in the God who sent Christ Jesus into the world the first time, providentially guided the affairs of history such that that seed of Abraham showed up. Trust that the God who brought him the first time shall bring him again as we saw him go. To raise our bodies from the grave. We who are trusting in him. To bring us to him. To live with Him forever. These are His stated purposes. These are His stated purposes.
God is unfolding His providence to serve His purposes. And His purposes most ultimately revolve around that seed of Abraham, Christ Jesus, and the people whom He is whom He has redeemed by that seed of Abraham. God's providence will continue to serve the purposes that He has for that seed and those who in Him are children of Abraham. So trusting God between the first coming and the second coming Trusting Him every day in between. Trust that His purposes stated for all who are united to Christ will come to pass. That God will unfold the events of history, will govern the events of history. That God will act providentially such that all His purposes come to pass. Remember that His purposes always prevail. And that his providence always serves his purposes.